when a guard would stop and talk to you, you used to stand back and you would yell so people could hear what you were saying to that guard as they walked by or, or within the vicinity. But he knew what a convict was going to do before they thought of it themselves. He'd just been around that long and uh, he was tough. They'd find uh, Sparky in about every conceivable place you could imagine, which we would, of course, dump. They'd wait until everybody was locked up and he would open his door, run down to cell one and get a bugler can full of Sparky and take it back to his cells. She had a kind of a hypnotic power. There were a great many wild cats around the penitentiary, and most people couldn't get near them. But she would stand in the doorway of the cell house and say, Kitty, 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 and those cats would go to her. Thank you for tuning into Stool Pigeon Saturday. Today, Sky and I are in the studio speaking to a special guest who is across the country in the 90.5 WESA studio in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. She's the author of the juvenile fiction book Prisoner 88, based on the story of Idaho's youngest inmate, 10-year-old James Oscar Baker, who was incarcerated in 1885 for a charge of manslaughter after killing a man who attacked his father in a bar fight in eastern Idaho. Leah Pelleggi, thank you for speaking with us today. It's so great to talk with you guys. Well, I... I think we could start out. Just can you tell us a little about yourself and your work and what inspires your writing? Um, I never really thought of myself as a writer growing up, and and not until my daughter was uh, a toddler did I realize how much I loved children's books. Because as she got older, I um, I sort of stuck with the children's books, and I started uh, learning to write in the children's genre. And uh, so what happened with this story is that I was in Boise, Idaho, with my husband, who was on a business trip. And uh, I had about two hours to kill. So I had seen in a local newspaper about the old Idaho penitentiary go visit. And I love historic places. So I went and took the tour. And uh, it was a very hot day. It was in May. Mm-hmm. And uh, as you know, of course, the tour is mostly outside. And <laughs> so the, the, the yeah. people were going to their cars to try and get cold because it was really hot outside. But I stayed for the entire uh, tour. And at the very end, the docent said that the youngest prisoner ever held there was 10 years old. And because I was studying children's writing, my first thought was, wow, I want to read that book. Mm-hmm. So I... Uh, I went back home to Pittsburgh, and I started doing a little reading, a little research, and and come to find out there wasn't much that was known about him. So I began to think, maybe this is my book to write. And uh, that's how it all got started. Yeah, I mean, you kind of answered our our next question. um, But but really, what was it about his story that made you want to know more and start doing this digging and this this research? Well, first of all, thinking of a 10-year-old being in prison, being a mom, I just sort of couldn't quite comprehend that. Um, so I had to find out why he was there. And one of the things I'd ask was, where did they put him? And the, the docent said, well, we assume that he lived with the warden and his wife or family and all. And so that seemed mm-hmm. logical, but I wanted to find out if, if that was true. Um, and I don't I, I don't know why I just was so drawn to this story. It's sort of like it was sitting there waiting to be found. 
and it was mine to find. Yeah, that's great. Uh, what was your, your process? Like, did you research first or did you imagine the experience, kind of write it and then learn after after writing it, learn more about James Oscar Baker's story? I um, I did a lot of research first. And, and what was interesting is mm-hmm. I contacted some of your folks there at the um, Idaho State mm-hmm. Historical Society. And there was a lot of information, actually, in, in a file or or I don't know where they had it, but they came up with a lot of stuff. Uh, newspaper clippings, the trial transcript. Um, And so I had all of this great information to work with. Um, So I did all of that first. I did all of the research. And uh, I guess my character, whose name is Jake, a little bit different than the real person, um, I just tried to think about what his life might have been like while he was in there because there weren't any documents that had... um, Anything that said like day to day, what happened, or what food he ate, or where he actually stayed. So that was that part was going to be up to me. Uh, very good. So um, the book is written from a child's perspective, but it's in a place that we would really typically gear toward kind of an adult audience. And so, who was your intended audience, and and really what was your approach to writing this point of view? Because I, uh, I, I would imagine that is kind of a, a challenge as you're approaching this this idea. I was studying children's literature and and, uh, actually doing writing for children. So I knew that that's my audience. I wanted it to be kids Mm -hmm. that would have been, that would be that age um, to uh, read about someone in a whole different time in history and what what they went through. So my intended audience was always um, ages 10 and up. And that's, that's been a, a kind of a sweet spot for the book. It's Fifth grade, um, it's been on some state reading lists for kids at that age. But I have to say, and this is going to sound kind of strange for people who aren't writers, but as I was writing the book, I sort of let Jake write his own story. I mean, there were days when I was writing, um, and I would look back on what I'd written the day before, and I didn't really remember that. And I would think, oh, that sounds really good. So it's, it, it's, um, it's something that happens when you're writing. Sometimes the character just really takes over. Yeah, I like. I really like the perspective in the book. I like that you kept with this, this young man kind of experiencing this hard, rough world. It's really fascinating. I, I was curious. Would you? Do you have any excerpts from the book that our listeners could could hear you read? Uh, I do. I have um, two things that I picked out. One of this is very, very short. And then there's another one that's just a little bit longer. So there was a, a, an inmate, that uh, a character in the book. His name is Mr. Nance. And he had told Jake that if he needed someone to talk to, he would be there for him. So Jake decides he's going to try to reach out. Locked back up in my cell, I walked one end to the other, to the other, to the other. Couldn't hardly stretch out my legs. All that walking, I got to thinking how Mr. Nance said I could talk to him if need be. I leaned against the bars. Mr. Nance, you there? I didn't get no answer from him. Instead, a squeaky voice down a ways yelled, He's hauling wood today, you little sissy. That burned me. I'd have liked to put that old squeaky-voiced man in my own prison, a secret prison. I imagined him smaller than me and with a head of nothing but mouth. You ain't even getting bread, you old mouth. 
You just stay on in there and rot. And then I felt a whole lot better. Because I imagine someone that age or even any inmate, you have, you have to spend a lot of time in your head, you know, um, making mm-hmm. things up, coming up with ways to just cope with things. Absolutely. And do you mind if I ask, because I, the the fact that you made uh, Mr. Nance and his other cellmate, and I apologize, I can't remember his name right now, how you made them um, Mormon, was there a particular reason for that? Or was that just sort of a, a I don't know, just a, one of those random creative choices? Um, well, there were Mormon, um, what they called cohabs in the penitentiary at that right. exact time, because this was right before um, right. the cohabitation was, they didn't do that in the church anymore. So uh, there were, in fact, prisoners in there just for that reason. But they were not, they weren't violent people at all, of course. And um, it just seemed logical to me that this uh, particular man might be a Mormon who would reach out to try to help uh, our little kid. Yeah. And we have actually journals from these uh, individuals who are in for these plural marriages, unlawful cohabitation. And they write about, you know, being teachers and kind of being the first trustees and performing music mm-hmm. and uh, being given a lot of freedom. So I, when I was reading that and I saw, I totally saw Nance being this role model for um, this little 10-year-old boy. Yeah. Yeah. It was a good dis- depiction of that. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Yeah. Have, have Has this inspired you to write any more about the prison experience? Have you written anything else kind of from this perspective of incarceration? I've done a lot of reading. I haven't really written anything else um, because mainly I, I like the historical aspect of things, but I have read a lot of things, of course, about current cases. And anytime I see a, a case now where there's a young person who's incarcerated, I, I tend to re- read that. But I haven't really done any more writing about um, incarceration. And I have to say, you know, it was it was a little bit tough because I had to put myself in his shoes sometimes and actually feel what mm-hmm. it was like to be um, in a very small space. And uh, it's not great. It's not good. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And that, I mean, that is what's fun about understanding what goes on out here is imagining yourself in those spaces and in those situations and how totally harrowing and terrifying that would be not just as a 10-year-old, but also as you know someone much older than that as well. Uh, so I thought that was a really excellent part of the book. Um, now we did, ha- uh, we were wondering how much, um, you know, as you did your research, how much you were interested in kind of accurately depicting the history of the site and of James himself um, versus how interested you were in just creating kind of a similar narrative and taking much more creative license, if that question makes sense. It does. Um, every aspect of what, I've put into this book is based on research. The food that they ate, um, the food that they grew, the fact that they took care of hogs, um, they did laundry, uh, the way the place was set up, everything is based on research that I had done. As far as the wire coming out and and how they communicate, um, those things are all based on, on reality. So Jake's story of of his inner world in his head is what I made up, but everything else um, is really based on a lot of research, which is really a lot of fun to get in and dig around and find out the truth about things. 
Have you visited the site since that that initial visit? Um, no, I haven't had a chance. I would love to. Oh. I would absolutely love to. But um, I've seen a lot of pictures, and I took a lot of pictures when I was there, and I, I feel like I know the place, but I would really like to go and just uh, walk around and be there again. But there's one other section I wanted to read a little bit, too. Um, Jake has a he has kind of a quick voice, like uh, when he sort of jumps in and talks too quickly sometimes, and he kind of got himself in trouble. He said he knew how to work with hogs when this came up in conversation. So sure enough, they're going to have work with hogs. But um, So this is him um, starting off on the first day, and of course he'll have to leave the penitentiary and be walked over by a guard so that he can uh, work with the hogs on a farm. Henry is the guard who's sort of He didn't necessarily get assigned to work with Jake, but it just has sort of worked out that way. And Henry's a a kind of a really good guy and is watching out for Jake. Me and Henry started out. The air felt nice and cool because it was early, but it was going to be hot, I could tell. We hiked about a mile or so, up a rise and down a rise, and around past some scraggly old trees till we got to the hogs. Wasn't no wind blowing, so I didn't know I was there till I was there. It didn't smell nothing like that other hog farm me and Pa worked. It weren't bad at all. We stood at the fence that surrounded the pen. A sea of mostly black hogs moved around inside, grunting and snuffling. One of them headed on over to me, sticking his snout through the fence, giving me a sniff. Then it went for my boot lace. I hopped up to the middle slat of the fence and stepped sideways along the rail, but that hog kept right on after my lace. You break it, you fix it. I jumped on down and stepped away from the fence, and there come the man who said those words. He was shuffling along the fence, all slumped over at the shoulders like he was looking permanent at the ground. He stopped right in front of me and Henry. Henry said to the top of the man's head, This here's Jake, Mr. Criswell. Mr. Criswell bent his whole body back to look me up and down. His right young-looking face didn't match with his bent-over self. His eyes was the same blue as the sky. You break that fence rail, you fix it. Don't make work, Jake, said Mr. Criswell. Yes, sir. We three men just stood looking for a minute, Henry and me at the hogs, Mr. Criswell at a spot between his feet. He said, just looks like a whole bunch of pigs, doesn't it, Jake? Yes, sir, I said, because it was just a whole bunch of pigs. He said, that's a lot of cooking fat and pork meat. He pointed over the fence past the heap of pig bodies. That fellow there is our boar. I couldn't miss him. He was covered in bristly hair, mostly black with some white patches. He stood in a small pen all to himself, and he was bigger than the bathtub in the washing cell. Mr. Criswell said, There are six sows and 45 good-sized pigs. I didn't know what to say about that. I couldn't count up that high, so I hoped that wasn't what he was getting at. Mr. Criswell was chewing on a piece of straw. I was told you know your way around a hog, Jake. Why did I have to go and say that? Well, me and Pa worked a couple days on a hog farm. Pa did some shoveling and cleaning up, but mostly I I couldn't make, I could have maybe made something up, but I figured Mr. Criswell could tell I didn't know nothing about hogs. I mostly played with a big old cat that hung around, and I fell off the roof of the barn. Mr. Criswell seemed like he was nodding in agreement, or maybe his head was just sort of bounced bouncing up and down a little bit all by itself when he laughed. An expert, he said. 
I was thinking. Shut your smart mouth. But my gut knew he was right. Get yourself a shovel there, he pointed off a ways. Henry said, looks like you're set, Jake. And then right after he took off, I seen a scrawny old yellow gold cat chasing after him. I looked away from that cat so fast, I about snapped my own neck. No more cats and no more roofs. Yeah, I, I like that you bring in all of this extra work because this institution was constructed by convicts. Uh, they they made sure to keep everybody busy, not only you know growing and raising cattle and growing food, but constructing the walls and the the buildings that they were even housed in themselves. Right. So I really like that you included that. And then the the cat at the end, his relationship with the cat is really fun to watch. Well, another <laughs> interesting part about this whole story is that. Um, I didn't know anything about pigs. I didn't know anything about raising pigs or, or all of this. So I actually did some research. I um, spoke with a, uh, a professor of animal husbandry from Penn State University mm. about hogs and about how to raise them. And then he referred me to someone, I believe it was in Iowa, who was a hog farmer. And between the two of them, they sent pictures to me. So that's how I know exactly what it looks like when hogs are born. <laughs> so you know, that was an interesting piece of uh, research. Mm-hmm. I always find as a creative writer that you end up going down these rabbit holes and knowing more about the most random <laughs> subjects right. than you thought you would ever know in your life. Right. You know, the random advertisements in the 1920s that might have been up on, you know, in Times Square or whatever. Yes you know, those sort of things. So I appreciate, you know, that that rabbit hole that you found yourself down, because obviously it lends uh, some awesome realism to the story. Not that obviously the rest, the rest wasn't, but to to understand, because I, I don't know anything about pigs either. So um, yeah, I appreciate that. So thank you for, for going down that rabbit hole for us. The other fun part was finding out about dynamite, because you had mentioned, um, Anthony, mm-hmm. about how um, they were actually using the um, inmates to, I guess, reinforce the wall because the wall had been st- um, had been wood and then they went out with dynamite. <laughs> the inmates went out with dynamite mm-hmm. and blasted the rock to bring it back. But I, I, I read a whole, um, it wasn't a master's thesis, but someone had done all this research about the inmates with the dynamite and blowing up the rock. So I know way more about that than I needed to know too. <laughs> That's just kind of our job <laughs> here. We learn all kinds of things like that. Yeah. How to quarry stone, how to shape yes. it. And yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, can you tell us what you found about the real life James Oscar Baker after his release? Yeah. So um, my husband got interested in this and he said, now, so I mm-hmm. wrote Jake as an only child and uh, his mother had mm-hmm. died. Um, and I think that focused the story really well. Um, but my husband said, well, I have to find out if there's any records about this real person. So, um, so in fact, he's one of 13 siblings, so <laughs> not exactly an only child. Um, yeah. He was third of 13 children. And uh, his mother, um, Miranda, I believe it is, uh, the, lots of different spellings. And, and of course, you know, as, as researchers, you'll find lots of different spellings for names. Um, But apparently she was uh, a healer using herbs to heal people, and she actually had some sort of um, connection to the the Hole-in-the-Wall gang. She had some sort of uh, 
cure for something. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what it was now. But, um, and then his father, we found, um, had been in the Civil War and had been shot off his horse, and the horse landed on him. So his, um, he, he couldn't move very oh, well. Wow. And we think that's part mm. of the reason that when this fight broke out in this saloon and that um, the real boy, James, picked up the gun and, and shot, it's probably because his father couldn't move very well because he had been wounded in the Civil War. Yeah. There's lots more about wow. his family, too. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, that's amazing. I, uh, and, and do you know how long he stayed here and uh, who or, or how he was released? I do know that. Um, uh, this is a spoiler for anyone who hasn't read the book. His sentence was five years, and he did not spend that much time in there. Um, he was released early, and it's, um, it's, again, it's one of these combinations of stories which you can't be sure exactly what happened because even though these are primary sources, the, you know, um, things are a little bit different. But, but the story mm-hmm. essentially is that the people in the community thought – that this just didn't make any sense to have this 10-year-old boy in the prison. Um, and there were petitions being drawn up. And uh, there was a man whose name was Serenius Mulkey, who had been a pioneer on the frontier. And uh, when he was 83 years old, he wrote his, uh, his story, his life story. And uh, he was part of the reason that... that James, the real boy, was let go early. He was a friend of the governor at that time. And uh, because people were saying, well, this boy shouldn't be in here anymore. He should be out. Well, people didn't like the, the boy's father. So the governor convinced his friend, Serenius Mulkey, that I'll let him go, but he's got to live with your family. And we do know that that happened. We do know that when he was released, he did go with Serenius Mulkey and his wife. Um, he was supposed to stay with that family until he was of age, which I, I don't know back then if, if that would have been 16 or 18 or whatever. But I, I think apparently he went um, actually immediately to be with his mother. But um, Serenius Mulkey was a really fascinating character, and uh, we found this manuscript about his life in the uh, library at the University of Washington, and he talks mm-hmm. about shooting Indians, and it was just sort of a daily thing. But one thing he was really proud of was getting this young kid out of the, the penitentiary. Yeah. yeah. I thought you sent me a, about a three-page excerpt from his autobiography, and I thought his discussion on, you know, you don't understand frontier life like I right. do. And I, I really thought that was interesting that he kind of had some self-awareness as a 80-year-old man, you know, writing his autobiography in a time when, yeah, it's just a little different perspective on Native Americans and and white settlers then. <laughs> he was just being honest. That's just the way yeah. things were when he was a young man and, and yeah. he was on, on the trail. And uh, yeah. But what was interesting... He'll say something in, about, oh, got this little boy out, and he had a sentence of 10 years. Well, the sentence was actually five years, but in other places like a newspaper mm-hmm. clipping, you'll see it was eight years. So, you know, there's all that sort of, it's, um, you know, a little bit of guesswork. But uh, 
yeah, he was an interesting character for sure. Now, I chose not to put that into the book. I had The, the ending is different um, because mm-hmm. I didn't really want to wrap things up that tightly. Um, and I, I like my ending. I think it's a hopeful ending to the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, did you, uh, were you able to find anything about James once he was, you know, out of um, the custody, once he became of age, basically? Uh, do you, were you able to find anything on kind of his later life? We followed him through the census records so we knew where he was. And he did ultimately go to uh, Washington State, which was where his mother was. Um, he was a laborer, he was married, he had, I believe, three children. Um, two sons who did not have it, go on to have families, but his daughter did have uh, children. So um, I've actually spoken um, to, I believe, it's a great-granddaughter. And uh, the family didn't really know much about, about him. Um, but the mm-hmm. most interesting um, family story is that um, his youngest brother was named Jess, and he was almost 20 years younger. And Jess didn't get married until he was in his 50s. And uh, he and his wife had a daughter, Audrey, who's now in her 60s. So Audrey is actually James Oscar Baker's niece, and she's still living. Um, of course, he had died before, uh-huh. before um, she met him, but um, it was just one generation removed. And that's really interesting to think about because I think we think about the fact that this penitentiary was incarcerating a 10-year-old that must have been almost 100 years ago. And so to think about the fact that there is, we still have someone living, just a one generation link back to him, that's that's amazing. It is. And, yeah. you know, as researchers, that's what we live for. And so I appreciate you, you know, finding that because that's blows my mind a little bit. She filled in some of the blanks for me about a couple of things, but then I told her some things that the family didn't know. So it was, it's, it's been a really interesting um, relationship. She's just a very sweet person. She actually shared some photographs. So I do have a few photographs of James when he was um, an old man, pretty much right. He lived into the 1940s. So, um, wow, that is, that's impressive. That's some great research you've done. Wow. But that's that's also what's great about it, working with each other is that, you know, we don't have access to the, this, you know, we didn't write this book and we don't have the, the time and resources to dig into these stories. But thankfully, uh, with Leah, she can, you know, bridge that gap for us and we can bridge the gap for her. And, and that's what's so great about working together and not just leaving it up to you or leaving it up to us is that, you know, we can, we can all kind of get this information from each other. Right. Fill in all the gaps that we can. Mm -hmm. Yes. Now, have you had any readers reach out to you with, with stories or or anything like that? I've gotten book reviews from um, adult book groups and from nine-year-olds. And pretty much every oh. everyone in between. It's been it's been really great. It was the um, honor book in the state of Arkansas a couple of years ago, and that's voted on by something like sixty thousand school age kids. So it's it's just the kids who vote on the book. And uh, so I've and I I do Skype visits with schools, and I just I love the questions that kids come up with. What what's one that you get the most? Hmm. Oh gosh. <laughs> Uh, 
it's it, it's tough to say because it's it's all over the place. Sometimes some some of the questions have to do with the writing process itself. Um, some of them have to do with while I visited there, what I saw. So I mean, it's really all over, and and I get new questions all the time. Surprisingly, and you told me something about somebody reaching out to you with uh, paranormal experience. Uh, <laughs> would you want? To, would you be interested in speaking about that? Yeah, it was just a. Um, so apparently there was a little five-year-old boy who was with a group taking a tour of the old pen a couple of years ago, and uh, your typical um, rambunctious five-year-old kid. But when they got inside the grounds of the penitentiary, he got very serious, and he sort of walked in as though he knew where he was going. And uh, one of the adults with him asked what was going on, and he said, I used to live here. He said, I worked here, and I was here because of my father. And they, they asked, well, who are you? And he said, my name's Baker. And there isn't really any way that this little five-year-old kid who couldn't even read yet um, would have known anything about this book or about the research. <laughs> but then uh, one of the adults with him sort of you know, did some digging and found my book and reached out to me and sort of asked some questions. So I don't know. I, I don't know what was going on. But I I can't oh, help thinking that, that James Oscar Baker was somehow, you know, reaching out and saying, find my story. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Huh. That is very interesting. It's I don't even know what to say to that. <laughs> I think I mouthed to Anthony, shut up. I can't believe that's 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 crazy. Yeah, yeah. I, I have no explanation. I really don't. Yeah. <laughs> well, awesome. Um, where can listeners find your book so that they can, you know, follow up with this this awesome interview that we've we've done? Um, any place that uh, any of the large uh, chain book chains, um, I. Go to your local independent bookstores. We love local indies. Yeah. Um, ask them to order mm-hmm. it if they don't have it in. Uh, they, you can get it through the uh, publisher, which is Charles Bridge. They are uh, in Massachusetts, and uh, you can go to their website. And they also have some other things on there, too, for teachers about uh, uh, some worksheets that you can use with students. Um, so really, anywhere that you can buy books, you, you can buy this. And it's what's interesting is that it's been out for a few years, but it just came out in the paperback edition just this month. And uh, so now I hope that more teachers and more librarians will be able to purchase it and, and be able to use it with their kids. Yeah, and that would be an excellent resource for Idaho teachers. You know, a, a ton of fourth graders, so that's our year for Idaho history. That's, yeah. you know, they, they come visit every year. And so that would be a really great resource for all our teachers out there to, to supplement their visit with this book. Well, that would be great. And uh, if there's any way that you can spread the word to them, that would be terrific. My my publisher would love teachers, that. Teachers, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's fantastic. Do you have anything else you want to add, Leah? I'm just so excited that you you folks are doing all the uh, podcasts and everything about the inmates there because it's such an interesting place. And I'm so glad that we finally got together and had a chance to do this. Me Thank too. You. Absolutely. Thank you so much for uh, agreeing to chat with us from such a, a long distance. Yep. But it sounds like you're right next door. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's great. 
All right. Well, we like to end our show with a, a call out. Basically, we say do your own time. And you would say? And in this case, it's James Oscar Baker's number, 88. Ooh, there you that's go. great. We really appreciate you <laughs> talking to us, Leah. Thanks so much, guys. <laughs> Have a great day. All right. You too. Take care. The paperback edition of Prisoner 88 by Leah Pileggi will be available in our gift shop soon. Pick up a copy the next time you visit. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe so others can find our podcast. If you're interested in more Old Idaho Penitentiary information and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in this episode, follow the Old Idaho Penitentiary on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to learn more about the Idaho State Historical Society and its other sites, follow ID State Historical Society on Instagram or visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for the hosts, please email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com.